Well, good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to this joint service of evening worship. I hope you've got an order of service handy. We'll be singing two hymns this evening, and the words of those hymns are on our order of service. Um, and I'll just point out to you that when we come to our first hymn, verses one and two are on the top and verses three and four underneath. But if in any doubt you can listen to the, um, I was going to say, uh, joyful voices rather than anything else, joyful voices of Hillhead Baptists singing along and they'll keep you right. I also suggested that it might be useful just to have a pen and some paper with you. And that is because um, you'll see also on the order of service um, just some questions that I'd like us to take some time to reflect on this evening. We'll be doing that personally. I'm not going to ask you to share with anybody else um, what you've been thinking. But if you've got time just to get a, a piece of paper and a pen just now, it might be helpful just to be able to uh, take some time for yourself to work out the answer to one or two of the questions on the order of service. This is going to be a fairly relaxed and quiet service. Uh, my main hope is just to create enough space for us to reflect on what it means to follow Jesus, both as individuals and as church communities. Now it feels like a good time to do that when the normal rhythms of our church life are interrupted, there is no such thing, I guess, as business as usual in any of our churches just now. And the routine demands that quite often drive us on from week to week without giving us space to think about why we're doing them, they've simply disappeared over this past few weeks. I expect we've all been doing quite a bit of that kind of reflection recently anyway, but what better place to do it than within the context of worship? So let's just take a few moments to slow down and to focus on the one that we are all trying to follow.
we hear these words from the Gospel of Luke. As Jesus and the disciples were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes of holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But the man said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We sing together our opening hymn, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. As I think most uh, folk already know, I grew up in a church that placed huge emphasis on personal salvation and consequently on an identifiable moment of decision to follow Jesus. 
Now, some of us will be able to identify a precise moment of time when we made a conscious decision to be a disciple of Jesus, but I'm guessing that for many more of us, it would be very difficult to do that because it was a process, a growing commitment based on what we saw of Jesus in Scripture and in the lives of other people who had made that commitment before us. Looking back, I can see that that emphasis on a personal, emotional response to Jesus was at the expense of other important aspects of discipleship. But the great gift that it gave me was an understanding that following Jesus is an act of will. These days, I suppose I see being a disciple of Jesus as a daily decision, maybe even a moment-by-moment decision rather than a once-and-for-all moment of conversion, but a decision nonetheless. So, what does a follower of Jesus look like? I'd like to offer three stories this evening to help us think through that question. The first story is from the Gospel of John, and Brian is going to read that for us. It was before the festival of the Passover, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to pass from this world to the Father. He'd always loved those who were in, his, in the world, but now he showed how perfect his love was. They were at supper, and the devil had already put it into the mind of Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had put everything into his hands and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And he got up from the table, removed his outer garment, and taking a towel, wrapped it round his waist. He then poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel he was wearing. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, at the moment, you do not, why, do not know why I am doing this thing, but later you will understand. Never, said Peter, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus replied, if I do not wash you, you can have nothing in common with me. Then, Lord, said Simon Peter, not only my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus said, no one who has taken a bath needs washing. He is clean all over. You too are clean, though not all of you are. He knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said, though not all of you are. When he had washed their feet and put on his clothes again, he went back to the table. Do you understand, he said? what I have done to you. You call me Master and Lord, and rightly so I am. If I, then, the Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you should wash each other's feet. I have given you an example 
so that you may copy what I have done for you. Our second story is about the writer of the hymn that we sang a couple of minutes ago. Uh, I am ashamed to say that until I was thinking about this evening's service, I had never noticed that in most hymn books, I have decided to follow Jesus is attributed to a Sikh follower of Jesus. Sundar Singh was born into a Sikh family in the Punjab in 1889, but after having a vision of Christ, he decided to follow Jesus and was publicly baptised as a Christian on his 16th birthday in the parish church in Simla. As a result, he was rejected by his father and ostracised by his home village. So he was given refuge by European missionaries. But to the surprise of those missionaries who took him in, Sundar Singh decided to adopt the nomadic lifestyle and the saffron robe and turban of a sadhu, a Sikh ascetic devoted to spiritual practice. He explained it like this. I am not worthy to follow in the steps of my Lord, but like him, I want no home, no possessions. Like him, I will belong to the road, sharing the suffering of my people, eating with those who will give me shelter, and telling all men of the love of God. As he grew in his new faith, um, Sundar Singh came to believe that Western civilization had forsaken the Jesus of the Gospels. He was disillusioned by the materialism and colonialism of Western society and worked hard to forge an Indian identity for the Indian church. He openly lamented the fact that Indian Christians would adopt British customs, things which had nothing whatever to do with Christ or Christianity. In 1909, he began to train for Christian ministry at the Anglican College in Lahore. But we're told that he never really fitted in. He was instructed to discard his sadhu's robe and wear respectable European clerical dress. He refused. Despite being invited to preach all over Europe and Australia, he has been largely forgotten outside of India. But in the subcontinent, he's remembered for the way in which his whole life was informed by his daily habit of meditating on the Gospels. Our third story was reported by the Reuters news agency last month. And I quote, England rugby international, Billy Vunipola, says he refused to take the knee in support of Black Lives Matter when the premiership resumed in mid-August, as some elements of the anti-racism protests did not align with his religious beliefs. All 12 premiership clubs decided on different gestures to show their support for anti-racism on their return to action. While the majority of Saracens players knelt before their match on Saturday, Vunapola, the England number eight, and a devout Christian, remained standing 
He said, what I saw in terms of that movement was not aligned with what I believe in. Even though I am a person of color, I am still more a person of, I guess, Jesus. Even though I am a person of color, I am still more a person of, I guess, Jesus. So what does a Jesus person look like? The obvious answer is like Jesus, but the trouble is we are all tempted to make Jesus in our own image in much the same way that white, blue-eyed, long-haired European painters depicted a white, blue-eyed, long-haired Jesus. Those of us who are trying to follow Jesus today tend to home in on those aspects of his life and example that resonate most strongly with us. I vividly remember seeing a television interview with a Nigerian pastor who preached a prosperity gospel, drove a $100,000 car, lived in a palatial compound while being surrounded by extreme poverty. When a reporter queried his extreme wealth, when after all Jesus was a poor man, the pastor was genuinely outraged. No, he said, you're wrong. Jesus was a wealthy man. Now, you've got to remember that this guy had read the Bible, but he had read it through the prism of his own desire to be a wealthy man. So all those biblical allusions to the kingdom of heaven as the pearl of great price or a treasure hidden in a field had been taken literally. All those promises of life in all its fullness had been interpreted as a life full of material things. My guess would be that if there aren't some aspects of being a Jesus person that make us uncomfortable, then we're probably not really following Jesus. So we need to keep challenging ourselves. Is this what Jesus really said? Or what I wish he'd said? Is this what Jesus really meant? Or what I choose to believe he meant? The passage we heard from John's Gospel, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, I think challenges us in two ways not only challenges us to serve others, but to let Jesus be who he is rather than who we think he should be. There's a Church of England vicar called Will Cookson who has written in his blog about visiting Jerusalem and going to see the traditional site of the Last Supper which is above the place where King David is traditionally believed to be buried. So upstairs you have crowds of Christians looking at the scene of the Last Supper, while down below you have crowds of Orthodox Jews praying at the supposed site of King David's tomb. Will Cookson says he's pretty sure that this is the site of neither of those things. But the one thing that it really highlighted for him was the difference between the way of David and the way of Jesus. 
David was the great king of Israel, the one who many saw as the archetype of the future Messiah. But David was about might and power. And Jesus was about service and love. So no wonder Jesus washing his disciples' feet caused such outrage. The disciples expected their Messiah to be a king. And instead, they got a servant. I'm going to ask if we can spend maybe just three or four minutes thinking about the first two questions that are on the order of service. Where have we aligned Jesus with our own prejudices and passions? And what aspects of Jesus' life and teaching have we overlooked or chosen to ignore? If you don't want to do that, then feel free just to listen to this version of Ubi Caritas as we reflect.
The second question I'd like us to think about this evening is really about what it means to be the church, to follow Jesus as a community, especially in these times and beyond. What will the church look like post-COVID-19? To prompt our thinking on this, I want to draw on the insights of two people I've been engaging with recently in different ways. The first is someone called Pete Phillips, who is the director of the Centre for Digital Theology at Durham University. Pete is a New Testament scholar who's also a bit of a tech geek and is deeply committed to helping the church to take hold of all the opportunities offered by the digital revolution. He's been speaking recently about what COVID-19 has taught us about what it means to follow Jesus as a Christian community. Suddenly, almost everything went online making church accessible to all sorts of people who might not have been able to engage with church before. The curious, the housebound, the vulnerable, the people who weren't safe or didn't feel safe coming to physical church. In some ways, it's quite ironic that we spent so much time thinking and praying and agonizing about how we could become more inclusive communities. And then along comes a pandemic and shows us that we've known how to do it all along. You don't need a ramp to get into online church. Prior to COVID-19, Surveys showed that on average, 9% of the UK population attended a church service at least once a month. A recent poll shows that since the beginning of the pandemic, somewhere between 25% and 29% of people are engaging with online church at least once a month. Pete wants to encourage churches to think going into the future about a hybrid existence. One that will embrace both the physical and the digital. A prospect which probably fills us with a sense of possibility and anxiety in equal measure. But we've always had intermediary spaces. Jesus healed from a distance. Paul sent letters in his stead. Pete likes to talk about online church as putting a comfy seat behind the back pew for those who would never have come to physical church. And I guess the challenge for us is when we can physically meet again, can we leave that comfy chair in place? The second person I've been engaging with is someone called Brian Sanders, who founded a network of microchurches in Florida that now lives and ministers in Dublin. 
I know absolutely nothing about Ryan Sanders or about the churches uh, that he founded in Florida, but I've been intrigued by some of the questions that he's been asking us. While so many of us obsess about declining memberships, decaying buildings, whether or not we can have an ordained minister, Brian Sanders wonders if Jesus would even recognize that model of church as a Christian community at all. And he encourages us to ask the question, what actually is the church? By that he means, what is the irreducible minimum? If you just did this, we'd be the church. Do you need a building? Money? Ordained leaders? Clearly spelled out governance? Sacraments? Now, my answer and your answer to some or all of those questions might be yes. But he goes on, and this is what really spoke to me. Most churches are small, and rightly so. The yearning for participation and empowerment has all of us looking for versions of church that make room for everyone. Perhaps after all our hand-wringing and insecurity about the size of our churches, we've missed the point. Micro-churches can be strong, beautiful, accessible, and potent portraits of just what Jesus had in mind. If not for all time, at least for ours. Now, maybe Brian Sanders is being overly simplistic. But as we anticipate a different future from the one that any of us had imagined, what are the implications for us as communities of believers if we are going to truly follow Jesus? Can we use this enforced hiatus from the merry-go-round of church life to ask how well our current way of being church has helped us to follow Jesus together? Is there a better model for the future that would allow us to see Jesus more clearly, love him more dearly, follow him more nearly as we travel on together? And again, I'd like us just to spend maybe four or five minutes looking at the three questions that I'm asking us to think about very specifically in terms of where we are now and each of us thinking about our own church community. What now is our common purpose as a church? And if that's different from what we thought it was in the past, what fresh daily or weekly rhythms need to emerge from our common purpose? And perhaps most importantly of all, how can we share life in deep and fresh ways that are both vulnerable and reciprocal? And again, if you prefer to, we can just listen to another version of Ubi Caritas.
Let us pray. God of love, we bring our prayers for our church communities and for the wider communities in which we are placed. In quiet faith, we place ourselves and our world into your hands, asking that your will may be done, despite everything that conspires against it. For all things are yours, and we entrust them to your keeping. We bring ourselves weak, faithless, hesitant, foolish. We bring all we are and all we long to be, seeking your help and your transforming touch. For all things are yours and we entrust them to your keeping. We bring our world, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the weak, the well-fed and the hungry, the healthy and the sick, those who enjoy peace, and those who endure war, those who revel in freedom, and those who are struggling for justice. For all things are yours, and we entrust them to your keeping. We leave them confidently with you, asking only this, that your kingdom may come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and that we may be given the strength and the wisdom to play our part in bringing in that kingdom of justice and of peace. Amen. And so we sing our closing hymn, Brother, Sister, Let Me Serve You.
in gratitude for the life and witness of Sadhu Sundar Singh, our blessing is a prayer from the Church of South India. So let us pray. God our Father, by whose mercy the world turns into darkness and returns again to light, we place into your hands our unfinished tasks, our unsolved problems, our unfulfilled hopes, knowing that only what you bless will prosper. To your love and protection we commit each other and all those we love, knowing that you alone are our sure defender. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.